Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Okay, so hello, Tom, and welcome back to Nailers Natter. It's a pleasure to be back. I missed you. Well, it was great because, I mean, obviously I listened to the first one that you did with David Weston, um, <laughs> referencing how long I've been pestering to get you on, and now twice within the same year. So what a pleasure. <laughs> Indeed, I must be getting cheaper. I'm kidding. It's really nice to be back here. <laughs> so we're, the reason for our conversation today is to talk about the new book. So there's a new John Cat book, which is Running the Room, which, uh, as we put this out, will be out already. So it will be in the hands of many of our listeners already. Um, so yeah, congratulations on the book. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by talking about, hopefully, the story of the first day that you taught a lesson, which is how you kind of opened the book. So we just tell listeners a little bit about that, Tom. Oh yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny how you have to drag up these traumas uh, for entertainment sake. But but I think it is quite opposite. I started teaching about God. What was it about fifteen years ago? And sixteen years ago? And seventeen? A um, hundred years ago? And if I'm honest, I found the training quite thin. And the first day I was in a classroom, um, it, it went quite badly. <laughs> and probably at that point, I should have thought to myself, maybe I should, I should, I should change my career. But um, so I was teaching it in a classroom, and I remember after about five minutes, the person who was mentoring me left the room. And you know, I, I thought, should, should that have just happened? You know, should, should, I not, should I not have, like, you know, lots of support mechanisms? Anyway, 10 minutes later, a boy walked into the back of the class without asking. And, uh, and he started to, well, he started to deal skunk, which I'm, I'm informed is a, is, is a type of drug. Um, and I walked up to him and I, and I said, you know, could you please, like, not deal skunk in, in, in what I presume was my classroom? And he told me to F off, although obviously he didn't, he didn't you know, he didn't self-censor. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just thought, what do you do now? <laughs> what do you do now when something so blatantly against the rules happens? And I had no idea because I'd been taught no strategies. So, I, you know, I told him to leave and he said, no, F off. And, I told him, and eventually he left of his own accord. But I was still talking to him, so I chased him around the playground. You know, <laughs> in, in, in that particularly useless way. You know, I, telling him to come back. And, of course, he didn't. And then about three days later, um, you know, he was dragged before me to apologise, and, and he did, but was, he didn't mean it, and I said thank you, and, and I didn't mean it either. Um, and it turns out that he was basically the son of a local drug dealer, and he only turned up to school to deal drugs, but you know, which is nice. I mean, certainly enterprising of him. And and I just remember thinking, you know, is is this what teaching's all about? And it has to be said, I was working in a particularly difficult and challenging school. It was the kind of school that actually you probably shouldn't put training teachers into because you don't really learn in situations like that. You just tend to kind of crumble. But fortunately, I was too uh, pig-headed to, to give up. And also, I had no options. So <laughs> I was forced to persevere. And we're very glad that you did, of course, because uh, all those experiences are very much put into to this book and all the training that you provide as well. So if we move into, you mentioned there that you didn't really have any strategy or principles, or you haven't been given any of those. So at the beginning, you talk about the principles of the classroom and you refer or allude to those throughout the book, Running the Room. So what are those principles? Oh, I mean, th th these are just kind of some broad themes which I've kind of picked up as, as I've gone along. And I'm not going to bore your, your, your listeners by, 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 by repeating them all. But there were, just, there were certain things which I thought would be very useful for teachers to, to appreciate and hear. And I've used these principles to kind of thread the rest of my book through. So, for example, um, there's a, there's a wonderful uh, film from, 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 from many years ago called uh, The King's Speech, um, where the then king, who suffers from a star, goes to a speech therapist, Lionel Logue, uh, played by the inimitable Jeffrey Rush in the film. And, uh, and the king, of course, who is, you know, still the monarch of a third of the globe or something like that, he lights a cigarette in his speech therapist room. And his speech therapist says, uh, put that cigarette out. And of course the king starts to splutter and saying, how dare you, I'm the king. And, and the therapist says, my room, my rules. And, and I liked that. And I remember thinking, you know, 15 years later, I'm gonna put this in a book. Um, because, because a lot of teachers struggle with the sense that, that it is, it's their room to run. 
Now that doesn't mean that they are magic and special and precious and nobody should touch them, but it means that they've got a special role. And it means that they have, they've got the moral right to run the room because it needs to be run. Because if you don't run the room, the room will run itself. And that will typically mean it's being led by the strongest and, and often the least pleasant personalities in the classroom. You know, power being a zero-sum game, somebody has to run the room and it's for the children's benefit. So, so even that, that simple premise, you know, my room, my rules, is one of the principles I talk about repeatedly throughout the book that a lot of teachers aren't comfortable with. I know a lot of teachers start their career thinking, you know, do I have the right to tell them what to do? And am I oppressing them by insisting that they don't punch each other? And, and I think, you know, we need to get over that and say, look, kids need you. They need you to be a teacher and they need you to be an adult. And they need somebody to be in charge of the room. And that's not only not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's a, it's, it's a vital thing. It's imperative that we do so. So that's one of the examples of the types of principles that I try to kind of pin the rest of my ideas upon. And things that I think every teacher should be told in the cradle of their career, rather than being forced to work out for themselves by some inscrutable and ghastly version of discovery learning. Absolutely. And um, I was very fortunate that I came to one of your online training sessions um, a few weeks ago where you were kind of... You poor man. The slides of that. Well, as I said to you off air at the beginning, you know, I am the, the kind of person that is responsible for both the writing and the implementing and yeah. as well, Tom, the living within your own behaviour policy as I still, um, as a deputy head of the school, still mm. very much teach in the school. Um, so, you know, you start off the presentation by talking about um, good behaviour, how it should be the central concern of, of any teacher. So how would you describe good behaviour and why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think that because behaviour management isn't particularly well trained at national and indeed an international level, and don't get me wrong, there are some great providers out there, you know, both school-based and, 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 and uni-based, but in general it's not very well taught. Because it's, 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 it's undersold in, in training, uh, you tend to get this quite, I would call it an, an immature conversation about behaviour management. So when you mention behaviour, uh, people immediately jump into ideas of, you know, the bell or the cane or something like that, or, you know, or, it's, or it's shouting at kids, that's behaviour management. And the only reason people think like that is because A, perhaps they've had negative experiences themselves from their own childhood, or B, they tend not to think about it very much, so therefore they rely on the kind of cliches and stereotypes. Good behaviour is behaviour that children need to be able to do in order to flourish. Pardon me, as children and as students, or should I say as students and as human beings. Which means it's a combination of not just being able to sit still and shut up. I mean, it's not not that, it is also that, but, but it's also the ability to know when to be quiet, when to listen, and when to speak, when to engage, and when to, when to disagree, and how to do so politely, and how to take part in group activities and how to enter and leave a classroom and how to transition between activities and how to hand in a piece of homework and what to do when you're stuck and what to do when somebody else is stuck and what to do when somebody bullies you and what to do when you see bullying. Behaviour is this enormous web of, of habits and aptitude and skill and knowledge that students need to know and be able to do in order to flourish in the classroom as people and as, as scholars and as learners. That's what good behaviour is. Uh, and if we can get away from this idea that it's just sitting still and shutting up, they would be able to have a lot more mature conversation about what it means rather than simply, you know, why do you want to tell children what to do? You know, that's just a small part of what teaching good behaviour means. And, that, and that's what leads into one of my other principles, which is that behaviour needs to be taught. And something I mentioned many times is that if you've got a child who's very well behaved in your classroom and you've got a child that's very poorly behaved in your classroom, neither of those children purely invented themselves. Both of those children are the products of their circumstances. So the behaviour that you think, oh, that child is very well behaved, the behaviour that child exhibits, that behaviour has been taught or learned in some way. You know, they've been habituated into behaving that way with teachers or institutions and so on. And it might be from their family or their peer group or their culture or their, 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 their broader family and so on. But they've learned it somewhere. And the children that don't behave particularly well have learned to behave that way too, through their own uh, circumstances and you know we are where we are if, if, if that's where children come from if that's where these habits and, and so on emerge then it's up to the school 
to then support children to improve their behaviour, which means teaching it, which is why I go back to the idea that behaviour must be taught. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book about that this to some teachers will feel strange and almost revolutionary. And why do you think that is the case? Well, because, I mean, to me, it seems an obvious thing now. <laughs> but you, you, know, you must never underestimate how, how unobvious some things can be when you're not very good at something. I mentioned in my book about something called the curse of expertise, uh, which is a, you know, a very well recognised uh, psychological phenomenon that when you're very good at something, you tend to underestimate how hard it is for other people. And, and you know, that applies to mathematics, applies to you know, physics and everything else. If you're very good at maths, if you've got a PhD in maths, for example, you often forget how hard number bonds are for little children. I'm not saying it makes you forget it, but, but it makes it easier for you to forget because you're so fluid at it. And the same principle applies to behavior because behavior is a package of habits and skills and aptitudes and knowledge and so on. And, and if you're very good at behaving, you know, i.e. if you are a teacher, if you're a grown-up, if you're a professional, if you've got a tertiary degree, then you're probably quite good at behaving. You know, you know how to wait your turn to be patient and you're probably, you know, pretty good manners, I'm hoping. Um, and you often forget that a lot of children haven't been taught or habituated into those patterns of behavior. So if you say to a class of seven-year-old children, I need you all to behave, that's a big, big concept. There's not a lot of detail involved in it and children will be free to interpret that as they wish. And for some children, you know, behaving well means, uh, you know, it means sitting still and being quiet and listening. For other children, behaving well means, well, I can walk around the classroom and put my headphones in. You know, because that's their own definition of behaviour. Or they might not be very used to doing the things you're asking them to do. So that's why I think it's, it can be a revelation for some teachers to hear this, because a lot of them will have entered the profession, not unreasonably, <laughs> because they want to teach the stuff they've been taught to teach. You know, and whether that be number bonds, or whether it be differential calculus, or whether it be Mozart, you know, that, they imagine that that's the thing they're there to teach. Well, the revelation for me, and the thing I see happening in very effective classrooms around the world is when teachers remember that it's also part of their job to teach the students the behavioural habits that will enable them to access learning and also be enable them to coexist in a calm, safe, dignified space where everyone's treated with respect. And, and, you know, and, and that, that to me is the revelation and also the revelation that, that it's up to you to do it because nobody else is going to do it for you. The children won't do it for you. If you've got really well-behaved children, then you're incredibly fortunate. But it's probably because you've got children from uh, a cohort which have been advantaged in some way by their circumstances, which is great. I'm delighted that they have been. But um, it's, it's, it's very much the luck of the draw. Yeah, absolutely. And that leads me on nicely to the next point. So that you can imagine that some people who are listening are saying, well, you know, this won't necessarily work in my school. And to kind of, you know, to quote the Smith's B-side that never was, you know, some schools are harder than others. Um, <laughs> what what kind of what would you say to people who are teaching in more in more difficult circumstances and what are maybe the most common mistakes when you're trying to run the room right okay good point um, it, it really needs to be said loud and proud that some schools some schools are more difficult than others more, some classrooms are more difficult than others and when I I, mean, I, re, I wrote a report uh, a couple of years ago called creating a culture for the department for education and it was basically, it was, it was commissioned by the Secretary of State for Education, and we wanted to try to find out what the most effective schools were doing to create the best behaviour. And, and one of the things that became very immediately apparent, I mean, it was obvious anyway, was that some schools were harder than others. And we tried to focus in that report on challenging schools in comprehensive demographics, simply because I'm not not interested in what Eaton's doing. You know, I mean, you, know, you can learn some fascinating things about behaviour there too, but it's a very different demographic. What I wanted to know was what, hap what, what do effective teachers and schools do with, with, you know, less than perfect circumstances? You very frequently see um, teachers with, you know, non-challenging classes, and they'll, they'll frequently say, oh, behaviour management is easy. <laughs> this, this is a piece of cake. These, I just ask the children to do things and they do them. I don't know why people get all upset. And I think it's from this type of circumstance that we often get some really bad advice when it comes to behaviour management from, from people who deal with um, very well-behaved children or, or sometimes, you know, more biddable or submissive cohorts or 
sometimes they're very young and or sometimes they can be old and mature um and some of the big mistakes that many teachers make when they enter the classroom environment is is to listen to some of these voices if i, if I can be honest um particularly people who've never taught in a challenging class or people who've never taught in a classroom or people who've never been in a classroom um and, and you do get an enormous amount of very bad advice out there i mean i remember i was once on a panel uh, at a university and we were doing this, this public panel and the other two people on the panel i think were uh, non-teachers they were they were academics and a, a woman in the audience stood up and asked a question and she said i teach I'm, i've just started to teach and i'm teaching in an old boys school some of the boys make suggestive comments about me what should i do and the academic who sat next to me um she said uh, have you tried flirting with them you know and everyone's jaws just hit the ground going what I remember thinking, how on earth could you say something so stupid? And I said so. I said, that's the worst idea I've ever had in my life. And, and it's because a lot of people with little experience of challenging classrooms have got some very lovely delusions about what would happen in a classroom if only they were there. But of course, they'll never have to test that in real life. So to get back to your original question, um, some of the big mistakes that a lot of teachers make when they enter a classroom is um, they'll they won't teach the behavior that they expect they'll simply try to teach the subject that they're there to teach whether that be mathematics or PE or music you know they'll look at the class and the class will look at them and they'll say right hello it's you know pleasure to meet you my name is mr bennett let's now do you know the kings of england or something and the class might allow the teacher a little honeymoon period while they figure out who they are and what the boundaries are but eventually they'll start to behave as they please and if the teacher hasn't taught them the their boundaries and their norms and their rules and their expectations and also how to do it i might add um then the class will just start to behave as they see fit and if you've got a class of of, of a very easy demographic then then congratulations you've just won the jackpot in terms of behavior but if you've got a normal class a regular class with even two or three challenging children or children who are struggling to control their behavior then then you've got big big problems so i would say that that's probably the biggest mistake that many teachers make but there's lots of other mistakes teachers make they'll try to be the best friends with the kids you know they, they might have been told that the way, the way in which you get classes to learn is by engaging them now there's a big truth in that but the problem is it's not very well defined so teachers will often think oh well, that means i have to make them laugh or i have to entertain them or i have to you know i have to make them like me which which is is, is sadly not why you're there you know you're there for their benefit and for everyone's benefit to, to help them learn and the weird thing is that if you have high expectations and you show the class you believe in them and you show the class that they matter, but you don't necessarily do things that please them all the time. You know, sometimes you call them out and very frequently you challenge them to improve themselves. The weird thing is that they'll respect you and, and the weirder thing is that they probably will like you. So, it's, it's, so relationships like that are often achieved indirectly rather than directly. And people frequently say, oh, behavior management's all about relationships. And again, th this has been the source of many errors it it is often about relationships and relationships definitely matter but it's not all about relationships um because if you if you insist that children will only behave if you have a relationship with them well then you've just said that it's okay for a child not to behave if they meet a teacher that they've never met before or a supply teacher or a member of staff with whom they're unfamiliar so the so the child needs to have a relationship not just with the teacher but also with the institution in which they learn and you know, sorry, I'm rattling on here, but, but there's, just, there's just so much bad advice out there. And it's because behavior management is a space that isn't discussed enough. And, and if I'm honest, it's low hanging fruit for, for, for chancellors like me to come along and hopefully spread a little bit of the gospel. Absolutely. And this is not just mistakes that, I mean, obviously listeners will be thinking, well, perhaps this is mistakes that you might make early in your career. And then, you know, the more you experience, the less likely you are to make these mistakes. But yeah. I mean, I can share a personal anecdote that I have alluded to before. Um, I changed schools at Christmas, you know, working still within Blackpool, but I, I became a deputy head at another school. So, of course, you know, thinking now that I am the deputy head, I'm almost, you know, like Tony Stark putting on the Iron Man costume. <laughs> everything will or everyone will bow down to my supreme authority yeah. i'm laughing in a very hollow way yes <laughs> so when you think when you're talking there about you know hello i'm mr bennett and i'm going to teach you the kings of england it was very much like that it was right i'm going to come in and now because i have this this you know 
this suit where I'm now the deputy, you will, of course, 11 set four, respect my authority immediately and let's Absolutely. get about, you know, whatever it is, the carbon cycle. And yeah, we did have that honeymoon period. We did have a couple of lessons where I thought, oh, this is, this is great. I, mean, I don't know what the problems are. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the cults came in and the lateness started and sitting with the friends and, you know, the, the low level talking. And the, the school won't mind me saying this. And, you know, I'm sure that if the students are listening, I doubt it they wouldn't mind it either, but we had to go back to how do you give out books? How do you come into the classroom? Yeah, how do you ask yeah. questions? And so this can happen. And I'm 21 years into this stuff. So it's for anybody. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the things you found, I mean, I've, I've coached and trained a lot of teachers now. I must've been in about 400, 500 schools now just to look at behavior. Um, which doesn't mean I'm any better than anybody else. You know, I'm as good as a good teacher at behavior management. Uh, but I have had the privilege of seeing lots of people being very effective and I've just tried, basically I've just magpied that for many, many people. Um, and what I find is there's, 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 there's lots of syndromes going on here. When you get, you get new teacher syndrome where, they're too, where they don't know what they don't know. And frequently they're too scared to ask because they don't want to look stupid. Uh, and they just assume that it's all their fault. And often they'll be told by um, well-intentioned but very wrong leadership that you know it's all about relationships and you've got to engage the children and if they're misbehaving then what's wrong with your lesson and are you meeting all of their needs and so on and it really shifts it onto the teacher to the extent that a lot of teachers think it's my fault if they misbehave which is wrong i might add and i'd like to emphasize that um i mean it's obviously it's your responsibility to do something about it but it's not your fault if a kid says f off i mean unless you've told them to f off in the first place in which case perhaps you might have some liability um, so that's new teachers, but the weirdest thing, or perhaps not the weirdest thing, is that I find that even experienced teachers, perhaps particularly experienced teachers, are very, very reluctant to ask for help in this endeavour because a lot of schools have this culture where to admit that kind of vulnerability is to admit, fail is to admit failure. And, you know, and why can't you do this by now? What's wrong with you? And so a lot of teachers will close the doors and suffer rather than seek outside help and to be honest a lot of teachers are right to do so because when they do seek outside help they're judged for it um, I was working in one particular school where um, I was working with the senior management and they, they, they produced this 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 list of, of their staff and they'd graded all their staff by how frequently they used the call-out system you know the removal system and how frequently they'd used uh, the consequence system because this was all logged in sims or something and it's and, it, and they'd highlighted you know the top 10 percent of the teachers that did this and said these are the worst teachers that we want you to work with and and i probed and they really did mean that they, they meant that because these people were using were using the system most they must be the weakest teachers now of course the reverse is frequently the true that um you'll find teachers who are very very good at their job are using the system because they've been told to use the system and then you've got teachers who are not using the system because they're scared to do so. Maybe they don't want to be judged rightly. They might be lazy. You know, it happens. Um, they might not have time because of other pressures and concerns and so on. But you might, you might find that the most effective teachers are using the system most. So there's a lot about school systems which are often quite dysfunctional, which can make it more difficult for teachers to teach and to manage behaviour. And one of the reasons why I initially, I mean, my initial report for the DFE was focusing on leadership was because we found that leadership was, if I'm honest, was the biggest lever for effecting some kind of behavioral and cultural change in education. And teachers had an enormous amount of impact and could do lots, lots to affect that. But um, it was the leaders that really had the biggest levers because they were the ones that could A, train but B, also unify the behaviour management systems of people throughout the school. Absolutely. And something else that really interests me is the fallacy of the single cause. So, I mean, I have to tread carefully in terms of being an active school leader and mentioning any of the single causes that, that may be kind of banded around for, for people's, you know, difficult behaviour sometimes. But you talk in quite detail about this fallacy of the single cause. So what is it and why do students misbehave? Yeah, I mean, very frequently people have got very simple ideas about what motivates children and that there's only one reason for why they would behave the way that they do. Uh, and then we universalise that and pretend that everybody behaves in the same way. Uh, human behaviour is, is very, is very um, akin to the weather in that there's lots and lots of factors affecting the weather. 
and some of these factors we can understand and we've got some sense of predicting them but because there's so many factors so many molecules all bouncing off one another um that it becomes very unpredictable which is why weather's quite hard to predict more than a few days in advance and even then it's not you know very very uh always possible to do so particularly if you live in scotland um and i think that sometimes we we, we fall victim to this in behavior management and education when we we've got our own pet theory about why people behave and then we just stick to that i mean giving you one example of the outcome of this is that very frequently you see schools where their idea of behavior management is is purely consequences and rewards the kind of behaviorist model of behavior management now i like to say that i i, I support that as part of a greater behavior management strategy i think that i think that as I explained in my book, I think consequences like sanctions, for example, and rewards, I think they can have an impact. And some people say, oh, no, no, we don't use them at all. Well, that's, that's normally a lie. Because even if you just tell kids off and you say, well done, you're still encouraging and discouraging them and you're attaching consequences to their behaviours. Um, but you can't just motivate children by, by consequences like that. Because human behaviour is too complex. So I would say that we need to use them, but at the same time, we need more than that to, to really reach out to as many children as possible. I think the analogy I use in the, in, in the book is of, of safe driving. You know, how do you motivate people to drive safely? Well, for a start, what you need to do is you need to teach them how to drive. You need to teach them to do the thing you're expecting them to do. And what we tend to do in schools just now is we tend to, um, we tend to give them cars and say, drive. Figure it out for yourself. And every time you bump into something, we'll give you some penalty points. You know, and, and that's the, you know, that's the, you know, the absurdly consequentialist route when all you've got are consequences and you, you haven't taught anyone proactively to behave the way you want to train, to, 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 to behave or to drive. But if you really want to motivate people to drive, you've got to have um, consequences too, as well as teaching them. Because some people will want to drive properly because they believe in safety because they don't enjoy driving quickly, because they want the children to be safe, because they believe in the safety of others, because they want to do the right thing and so on and so forth. But you have to have consequences attached to it as well. So my point is, is that you need to have multiple strategies for dealing with misbehavior in classrooms and, and at whole school level. And if, you, and if you lean too heavily on only one, like some schools, for example, which go down the, the, the purely restorative route, um, it, it becomes, far too simplistic an approach to deal with the complexities of human behaviour in the wild. Welcome to Nailer's Nader. Follow us on Twitter at PMA1977. Moves nicely, Tom, into section two of right, yeah. where we talk about classroom culture. And obviously, you've always been uh, an advocate as within the policies that you've talked about and within the ways of doing things about routines, norms, um, etc. But I think that that's again, as you said, becoming really important in the school's you know full reopening plans. So before we get into talk about um, social norms and routines and expectations, can we just talk about classroom culture? So. What do, you, what do you define classroom culture as and how do we go about creating one? Yeah, sure. I mean, sociologists might howl at me for butchering their concept here, but all that I mean by culture are the, 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 the norms, beliefs and routines, sorry, the norms, beliefs and values um, of a community. The things, the things that people value, the things that people think are important. That's where the culture is. And that's where, where culture is, is centred. And those values and beliefs then lead to certain behaviours. So, for example, if you come from uh, a family which you know, values education, values school, and respects institutional authority, for example, then the child from that culture will come to school with a very different set of beliefs uh, about school and how to behave and, and what to do when somebody says, can you bring in some homework or, or stand on the left? Um, and so that's what I mean by culture. And that's what I mean by creating a classroom culture, because the culture exists whether or not you do anything about it you know if you, if you go in and just try and teach the kings of england there'll still be a classroom culture the, the danger is that you haven't contributed substantially to it and you're a participant in it rather than um shall we say uh, a principal actor 
and the teacher can be the principal actor in the culture of the classroom. And again, I should stress that if you're in a challenging school, this is 10 times harder. And if you're in a badly run school, this is 10 times harder. So if you're in a badly run school, which is also in a challenging area, this is 100 times harder. You know, so be prepared for that. Um, and it's not your fault that it's so hard. And other people do have it easier than you. You're not, you're, you know, you're not just imagining things. But we are where we are. And when you're the classroom teacher, it's your job to try and do your best with what you've got. You can't change the world, but you can try and fix the space right in front of you, which means you do your best with the kids you've got in front of you, which means you try to create the culture, which means you try to create, and this is, this is a line that Vic Goddard used to always use, and he told me he got it from somebody else. You know, you, you've got to make the weather in your own classroom, um, which means telling the kids what's important and being really clear about it. And we go back to the whole my room, my rules principle, which is um, the kids will all come to the classroom with certain expectations about what good behavior is and what good conduct is. And some of that will be quite toxic. You know, some children will think it's perfectly fine to bully other children. You know, they'll, they'll see that as good behavior. They'll think, oh, that, ch that, that, that kid deserved it and so on. So it's your job to come along and really lay down the rules and lay down the law and say, this is what matters in this classroom. This is why we're doing it. This is why it's important. And this is what we're going to do in order to achieve that. And, and teachers mustn't shy away from that. And I used to start all my lessons by saying some really simple beats. I would say, um, you know, welcome to, welcome to my classroom. Welcome to my lesson. Subtle use of my there. Um, I really look forward to teaching you. I really enjoy my subject. Um, I know that you can all do really well. I hope you all do your best. I promise I'll do my best to help you be really good at this. And if you're struggling, I'll help you. And I hope you can all succeed and achieve. And I, you know, I believe that you can. You know, you really lay down these beats of, you know, I believe in you, you matter, you matter to me, your learning matters to me, but I matter too. And then you say, so in order to achieve that, in order for us all to learn in a calm, safe, dignified space, here's how we're all gonna behave with each other. And kids get it, they get it. And you know why, it's because, because most of them are, are primed to expect an adult to tell them what they should be doing. And they find it a wee bit weird when an adult doesn't. In the same way they find it a wee bit weird when an adult lets a kid tell them to F off and doesn't ask him to leave. You know, kids will frequently say, well, why didn't you ask him to leave? He told you to F off, that was really rude. And the teacher will go, oh, well, I was trying to be inclusive or something. You know, sometimes kids have got the, the, right, the right idea. They, they know that there are certain conduct requirements in order to coexist peacefully and sensibly and kindly with one another in a space. And it's the job of the teacher to create that space. And that's why I call it the culture. Brilliant. And Tom, I've had the pleasure of watching you talk quite a few times over the years. And you share a story oh about, I know, about the fire alarm. So I think you talk with that in reference to, you know, positive social norms. Would you mind sharing that story briefly about the fire alarm and how important, you know, social norms are, particularly maybe now as well? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I've used this for many years. It's basically... Um, Human beings are intensely social creatures. Um, you know, and, and we see this in the animal kingdom. That, I mean, there are, there are some creatures which are far less social than us, like sharks, barely see each other, uh, <laughs> you know, never send each other letters. And then there's very, very social animals like, uh, like ants, you know, who just you know, ex exist for the greater good of the colony. And we are somewhere in between that, but we're quite social. I mean, even Aristotle was talking about this two and a half thousand years ago. Um, we look to each other for behavioural cues a lot. And it, you know, it's probably an evolved trait to some extent, you know, both culturally and biologically, in the sense that when you know how everyone else is acting, it gives, it's called, this is called social proof theory. It gives you a sense of, well, you know how you should act because everyone else is acting the same way. And we do it all the time. And a classic example is uh, the fire alarm. The fire alarm goes off in a classroom. Now, the fire alarm is a clear signal to clear the hell off you know, to get the hell out of there. Uh, and most people are reasonably well-trained in what to do in the fire alarm, or at least in that. But very frequently an alarm will go off and the kids will look at the teacher and look at them and say, well, what should we do? Is that a real fire alarm? And the teacher will look at the kids and say, I'm not sure if that's a real fire alarm or not. I'll, you know, I'll just go and check. And then the teacher will lean into the corridor and ask another teacher, is that a real fire You know, shall we leave? Which is madness. I mean, what they're trying to do is they're trying to socially decide the truth of the world rather than follow the routine, which is if the fire alarm goes off, assume there's a fire and go. So, I mean, so norms play a huge part in our, in our behavior. 
I love that story. And just to follow on with it, I mean, this is the bit that I really love. I know I'm talking about small details within running the room, but you've got a sentence that says, always insist, not a norm, but a maybe. And I just love that from, from both a teaching point of view, Tom, and from a parenting point of view as well. So, you know, for example, I mentioned that year 11 class that I talked about earlier on. Um, that took over at Christmas and letting them out of the classroom we have an end and send routine which is that you know pupils have to go out of the classroom and we say you know thank you for the lesson and off you go with that with your coats off for example and you know at the first couple of times that happened a couple of them decided that the bell goes and off we go now of course you know as you're duty bound as a teacher to come out with a line of the bell is for me and not for you absolutely it's the law you have to say that yes you have to say that but you know insisting that they go back and it's time me out the desks again and the coats come off. So always insisting, not a norm, but a maybe. How important is that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, th th this is where people start to disagree because some people will say, you know, oh my God, how, you know, how can you tell children what to do? You, 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 you terrible, terrible monster. Um, if you say to someone, if you say to someone that you, you may have to do this, you know, but, but include the caveat, but if you don't do it, it's okay. Don't be surprised if people don't do it. You know, if, 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 if somebody said to you, um, I need this report by Monday, but Tuesday's okay, you know, you, you, you might not unreasonably find a lot of people handing in the reports on a Tuesday because, because you said it was okay. You basically said it was okay. If you say to children, um, when the bell goes, you need to wait for me to dismiss you, probably. Or if you indicate to them in some way that, 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 that you're not really sure about it or, or you're not that bothered by it, then don't be surprised if children do exactly what you've just said, which is to interpret your, your remark as charitably and favorably towards them as, as possible. And I think that um, the teachers need to be a lot more um, on board with the idea of they'll, they'll need to give clear, direct, and non-negotiable instructions. Now, as I say frequently throughout the book, there are always exceptions to rules and to instructions. You know, I mean, I used to have an instruction with my kids that you know, nobody leaves the classroom without my permission. I don't think that's terribly unreasonable. It's the only way you can keep them safe. Now, if a car crashed into the classroom or the classroom caught fire, you know, I think we could probably dispense with that expectation with that rule. So there's always going to be exceptions, but exceptions must be exceptional. Whereas an everyday occurrence like sending children out of a lesson at your dismissal, you know, that's, there are a few exceptional circumstances in which children can, can disobey that or should disobey that because it's just not safe because it's your room and your rules and you're doing everything for the safety and the well-being of the children. So, Teachers need to be unambiguous and direct about what they've asked. And when they've asked it, they need to always follow through. The minute a child uh, breaks the convention that you've set, you must offer some level of challenge. It doesn't have to be punitively. You know, you could, you know, you could, you could just correct them. You could remind them. You could get them to do the thing again. Like you say, you could get them all to sit down in their seats again and then dismiss them again row by row. Um, but the point is, it has to matter when somebody doesn't do what you've asked them to do. And I think that centers um, what it means to be a teacher. I mean, I used to take children on Duke of Edinburgh trips. I used, to, I used to love doing Duke of Edinburgh trips. I used to go camp in the Welsh mountains and so on. And I, the thing I used to say to them was that I'm taking away somewhere which is dangerous. You know, if you, if you, if you fall down a cliff, you, know, you, could, you could die. Um, which means you need to follow my instructions, including the little ones. Because if you don't follow my, strong, my small instructions, then I can't trust you to be the big ones, which means I can't keep you safe. And, and, and I would use that kind of, that, that kind of uh, mentality to, to show children that the little things matter too, as well as the big things. Yeah, completely. And the little things matter. And as you said as well, that makes it easy to behave well and more difficult to get it wrong. So yeah. I'm just conscious of time now, Tom. So I'm going to move into routines, if that's okay. Of course. Um, something that I think that leaders will be grappling with at the moment. So, um, you know, I, I've certainly been <laughs> involved in shooting an instructional video for how to line up at the front of school and how to um, enter into the building via the... So you're talking in the book about uh, routines and the benefits of routines. So if you can tell us a little bit about what you think a routine is, the benefits of them, but also, you know, do you think that routines infantilise students and, you know, possibly even worse, um, possibly taking in the conversation around uh, one of my favourite books of all time, which I'm not changing my view on, Teach Like a Champion. So you talked a little bit about routines. Yeah, sure. I mean, a routine... Well, I can't wait to talk about Teach Like a Champion. Um, routines are an essential part of, of, of the, uh, the, the school teacher's apparatus when it comes to creating a culture. A routine is basically, I mean, I'm cheating here slightly, a routine is basically a norm in the sense that it's a set sequence of behaviours that you expect to be done pretty much with the exception pretty much all the time. 
Um, a norm is a little bit more ambiguous, it's a little bit more gaseous. You know, you could have a norm of being kind and working hard and so on and celebrating failure as a means to success and all the rest of it. That could be your norms. But a routine is a special type of norm. It's, it's a, you've got to do this in this order. So do one, two, three, four things in a certain order. So you would have a routine for entering a classroom, leaving a classroom, answering a question, asking a question, going to the toilets, uh, lining up in the assembly hall, going in the assembly and so on. It would be a set sequence of behaviours. And the reason why routines are so useful is because it clarifies with as, with as you know, little ambiguity as possible what people should be doing at a given time. You only need the routines that you need where behaviour is routinely not very good in a particular area. So in some schools, I recommend that they teach children corridor routines. I mean, literally, how to walk down a corridor. I know, I know it sounds dreary and trivial, but if you don't teach it to them in some kind of formal way, and kids are running up the corridor, Superman punching each other, and, and you know, and throwing bags at each other, and it's just like a kind of Brownian motion chaos. Then you need to teach them how to walk up a corridor. And you go to other schools where kids are, you know, perfectly capable of walking along a corridor safely and civilly, and that's fine. So you don't, you know, so you don't waste your time on a corridor routine because things are hunky dory. You might mention it occasionally just to kind of keep things ticking over, but you might focus on routines that are needed. So where behavior behavior is habitually poor, you need a routine. You need to systematize the behavior. So I, I normally suggest to teachers that routines are normally useful at points where you're trying to change somebody's behaviour. So it, you know, from the corridor to the classroom, from the from the desk to the floor, from you know, from the playground to the assembly hall, and so on, where you're trying to get people to change what they're doing already. Um, you know, you're trying to affect their momentum to some extent, and you need to teach them what they should be doing. Now, one of the most commonly and best upheld routines in school are the fire routines you know, despite what I've just said because people know it's important and because teaching the fire routine saves lives everyone knows it everyone knows it's important and whenever I go to a school even a school with poor behavior they can normally do the the fire drill pretty well because it's been taught because it's considered to be important because if they get it wrong they do it again and if we apply that logic to, to other smaller behaviors we find that what we call good behavior is actually made up of lots and lots and lots of little behaviors in the same way that driving a car is a big concept, but it's made up of lots and lots of little behaviours like clutch control and you know steering wheel control and using your mirrors and coordinating all these activities simultaneously. So when you're teaching behaviour in the classroom, you teach the routines that you want to see. And crucially, you get them to practice these routines. Because as I say throughout my book, behaviour is a curriculum, it needs to be taught. And we use all the principles we use to teach anything to teach behaviour. In fact, at one point in my book, I even refer to Rosenstein's principles of instruction as, 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 as a nice, very handy um, skeleton for how you can teach behavioural routines because, because it's a form of learning, which means you have to practice it. Nothing was ever learned without practice and correction and proper instruction and, and, and so on and so on, and revising and reviewing. So that's why routines are, are hugely important. Um, Doug Lamov, who is a giant in the field of behaviour management, although to be fair, it's, it's mostly populated by pygmies. Um, Doug Lamov's book, Teach Like a Champion, is really, really good on this. What he did was he went to classrooms where behaviour was potentially challenging because of the demographic, but teachers were very effective. And he just watched what they did. And he just and he wrote it down and he copied it, which to some extent is what I've been doing all my professional career as well. And a lot of things I do echoes and compliments what Doug Lamov has said in his book, Teach Like a Champion. Um, and until my book, <laughs> until my book comes out, it's still the best book of behavior management by far, and people would do well to read it and and uh, and, and to learn from it. Absolutely, and um, it's something that we're still including. So I spoke. I was lucky enough to speak to Doug last year. Uh, he knows what a big admirer I am uh, of his work, and obviously of his field guide as well, which we use routinely with you know with with new staff particularly, but with all staff. And I can see very much that running the room. Um, will also be you know, a, a staple book for all teachers, certainly on, on this area. But I mean, in terms of doing the routines, Tom, it, it's not, in my view, and this is me personally speaking, I'm not seeking to infantilize students in any way, shape or form. Oh, I see. I'm yeah, no, again, can I just say, I find, I find this vaguely absurd. If I'm honest, most of the criticisms of you know, what I regard as being very sensible behavior management comes from people with very little experience of successfully managing challenging classrooms. You know, and, and my mind boggles. I mean, you, surgeons don't take advice from homeopaths, you know, or they, they certainly shouldn't, you know, or from tarot readers. 
are from people who claim to have second sight or special magical abilities. You know, surgeons don't go to faith healers and say, make my patient well. You know, because there's a clear difference between um, observed, demonstrably effective practice and, and superstition and witchcraft and sorcery. And weirdly enough, we get a lot of this in education where people, have, like I say, have never set foot in a challenging classroom. Feel free to make bizarrely, profoundly ideological pronouncements about what should work in a classroom. You know, well, if, if, if it did, maybe they should take a challenging class once in a while and, and, and try to make it work because so far nobody has. And the idea that teaching a child a routine infantilizes them is, is, is the kind of absurd thing that only an academic could say or, or somebody who's never set foot in a challenging classroom. Because would you say that teaching someone, to teaching someone the routines of how to drive a car infantilizes them? Or should, you know, or should they be forced to learn it by themselves and just work out what, all the, what, what, the, what the things do? Because if you don't teach a child how to behave in a classroom and, they, and they've got a vague idea of how to behave or they've got no idea of how to behave or they don't think it's normal to behave that way or they haven't been taught in their lives how to focus or wait their turn or be patient because these things are habits as much as skills, then you're condemning that child to a lifetime of disadvantage because they'll fall further and further behind in the, in the learning life of the class and the social life of the class. You're dooming that child to years of ever-increasing disadvantage. And I just find it not only absurd, but, but, but vaguely contemptible when people give, I'm sure well-meant advice like that, but advice which only leads to children doing worse in school, particularly the children who are already the most disadvantaged. Um, I'd rather stick to systems routines that help make children powerful, that help them to access the curriculum, that help them to develop self-discipline and self-regulation so that they can then become more successful human beings uh, and more independent rather than less. Absolutely. And we talked earlier on about, you know, anxiety and there's a lot in the news about, you know, students returning to school. But actually, routines will help everybody in terms of, you know, that when you enter this classroom, this is where your book is. This is where you put this down. This is where you sit. This is how you ask and answer questions. This is how you sit even. You know, these things are reducing people's anxiety, both in terms of, you know, the, the pupils in the classroom, but also the teachers. The, the number of decisions that teachers must have to make in, in classrooms where there aren't routines must be no wonder that, that teachers find the job challenging sometimes and risk burnout if you're having to decide each and every time a class comes into the room about how they do that or how they get Yeah, absolutely. Work. I mean, the, 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 I think the, the weird thing I find about people who object to systematising behaviour in a classroom is do you think that it somehow roboticizes children? And um, you know, people often say, oh, "You're a monster, Bennett." You know, you don't want children to you don't want children to think. You know what? I don't. I don't want children to think about where their pens are. I don't want them to have to think about how they sit. I don't want them to have to think about where their jacket goes. I want that to be utterly subliminal. I want that to be done unconsciously. I want to free up their working memory so they can think about art, and music, and poetry, and science, and every other wonderful magical thing that learning can offer them. I don't want an hour of the day to be spent with the teacher telling kids to sit in their seats properly or, you know, or wasting time because someone's talking over somebody else. I want that to be, I want that to be automatic so that they can learn and be more powerful creatures than they ever were before. You know, you wouldn't say, I mean, look at the highway code, for instance. Now, I'm a big fan of the highway code. The highway code is essentially a, a large system of interconnecting routines. Now, when we all obey the highway code, everybody gets to where they want to get to that little bit quicker. In fact, a lot quicker and things are safer and less people die because we've systematized the behavior of the interactions of people in, social in large social communities, namely the road. Nobody would dream of saying the highway code infantilizes a driver. You know, somebody could come along, you, know, you might get a Jeremy Clarkson figure who says, I'm a brilliant driver, I don't need the highway code. You know, you, know, you might not, but everybody does in order to make sure that everyone's kept safe from one another, but also so that people can flourish and people can drive safely. Anyway, it's absurd. Completely. And if uh, listeners are interested in that Dublin Mob interview, that's very much still available uh, on the back episodes of the podcast. Right, last couple, Tom, uh, if that's okay. So of course. As we move again through section two at the end, we talk about rewards and we talk about sanctions. So kind of a, a double question here. Are sanctions cruel and do they work? And can we reward students into good behaviour? Yeah, sanctions. The crueler, the better. In my no, I'm kidding. Um, it's, it's it's an odd thing, you know. There's a lot of research that's been done into the effect of 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 consequences and deterrence and incentives and so on. 
I mean, the field of economics is, is, is essentially based on it. You know, do sanctions work? The, the answer is a rather complicated and liberal sometimes and maybe. Um, we know that sanctions as a deterrent affect some people more than others. We know that uh, the people who are the most, I mean, that's, that's what a sanction is, it's a deterrent. And at its, at its most, in its most naked form, that's the effect you're looking for. You seek to deter future behavior. It doesn't work with everybody. You know, the deterrents don't, don't cure people magically. They don't make them into good people. No, no, nobody ever sat in a detention and like Jean Valjean from Les Miserables and thought to themselves, my God, my life is going in the wrong direction. You know, it's, it's meant to be vaguely uncomfortable. So they think, oh, I don't, want to do, I don't want this to happen again. So I'll avoid the behavior that incurs it. The people that are most affected by sanctions tend to be the people who have already bought most into the social norms. It tends to be the best behaved children who are the most deterred by sanctions, which is kind of rubbish because it's not the ones you want to be the most deterred. The children are the least deterred are the, the ones who have bought into your social norms the least, i.e. The, the already worst behaved. So there is, there's a slight tension here because everybody knows a, a pupil for whom you know, sanctions just don't seem to have an impact on them. But that then leads somebody, some people into the erroneous conclusion that therefore we shouldn't have sanctions. And you know, nothing could be further from the truth because some children are particularly affected by sanctions, but most children are affected to some extent by sanctions. They're deterred to some extent. And, and you can't run a behavior system based on sanctions alone, but as part of a broader, more complex behavioral system, they are very useful as short-term extrinsic motivators to do the right thing. Because most children are in the middle. Most children are neither angelic nor demonic. They, 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 they tend to kind of be affected by a variety of factors, which you know, could be internal, could be external and so on. And if you give them a reason not to misbehave, for instance, a mild detention, a mild sanction or something, then some people will be affected by that. It's the same with the rewards, incidentally. Rewards are also useful, but an often problematic way of, of achieving better behavior because not everybody's affected by rewards. Uh, or some people are affected by rewards more than others, and some people are very incentivized, and some people are not incentivized. So there's, there's a danger there that um, rewards can, 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 you know, can sometimes uh, normalize the expectation that you should get a treat for doing the right thing, where in actual fact it should just be an expected thing. But sanctions are a perfectly acceptable part of every school behavior system. In fact, I would say they're an essential part of every school behavior system. And I do sometimes see some people say, oh, we don't use sanctions of any kind. We have a purely restorative approach. But, but here's the weird thing. You find the same kids getting the same restorative conversations. And you see the same, you see the same kids getting the 30-minute conversation at the end of the day. And I assure you this, if you keep a child at the end of the day for 30 minutes to have a, have a conversation that they don't want to have, I assure you they see that as a detention. I assure you they see it as a sanction. And even if you only reprimand the student, that's a sanction. So every school has them. So the question is, let, let's use them effectively, sincerely, uh, in a compassionate and just way. Because the odd thing about sanctions is we know that the deterrent effect is maximized when the expectation is maximized that they will happen. In other words, to quote the, the, the great Bill Rogers, the certainty of a sanction is far more important than the severity of a sanction. Kids need to trust the system. And when they know they're going to get sanctioned for doing a certain behavior, they're far more likely to be disincentivized from performing that behavior. Again, it won't affect everyone and it doesn't stop everyone from misbehaving in the same way that um, penalty points and being pulled over by the police doesn't prevent all speeding and misbehavior. But it certainly provides a break on misbehavior. And that's all that sanctions are supposed to be doing, providing a break. Absolutely. Right, just at this point to say, I really, really appreciate your time, Tom, this morning. So thank you very much for that. I want to oh, leave listeners wanting more, and there's a lot more in the book running the room. So can we just finish off by telling listeners about where the book is available? And I know that obviously a lot of listeners uh, and leaders in school will be looking at, you know, purchasing the book for all the staff. So there are some discounts for bulk buys, etc. And could you tell listeners about any work that you've got coming up and any presentation events that you might be hosting, wow. uh, virtually or otherwise, and including signposting the one that you did with Tom Sherrington, I think it was last week, wasn't it? Yeah, of course, of course. Gosh, um, yes, yeah, so the, the book's out on August the 28th, so hopefully by the time your viewers are there, are, are listening to this, it should be there. Um, it's available from, from Amazon. Uh, and all of the finest bookshops, I'm sure, and sometimes even the less fine ones. And and John Cat, the publishers, um, I believe there's some kind of uh, bulk deal for them if you apply to them directly. Um, oddly enough, I think as as we mentioned earlier on in our external conversation, I wrote so much for this book that there was too much to go in the book. So we, we took about 200 pages out. We'll be releasing that in January. 
and it'll be the running of the room companion. <laughs> um, wait for the exercise video, which will probably come out the year after that. And currently I'm writing running uh, the school, which is the, the kind of running the room version, but for leaders, and it deals much more with whole school systems and, and that level of leverage. Um, so we did a, a chat recently with Tom Sherrington, which is available online uh, about this. And I think just if you just Google Tom Sherrington, Tom Bennett running the room, and you should be able to find it. And also we've got, uh, on September the 2nd, I believe we've got a web chat with the Charter College of Teaching. We'll be talking about this. So yeah, please buy it, read it, borrow it, steal it, photocopy it, do, do what they will, but I hope people find it useful because um, it really is the, the, the sum total of what I found to be the most useful advice in real life classrooms with real children in order to, to diminish disadvantage and promote healthy, safe and calm classrooms where everybody's treated with dignity. Brilliant. And just two personal thank yous from me, Tom. So first of all, thanks to you and Helen for trusting uh, little old Blackpool with the research, Ed. Um, yes, don't break it. <laughs> so we did manage to uh, get a couple of those in and hopefully we can we can do another one. So I'm sure that Simon Cox and uh, Stephen Tinney will be listening. So we'll get there. No, no, we'll get to the other side of this whole COVID thing and then and hopefully we'll laugh about it. Yeah, absolutely. And also thank you for all the work that you've done in Blackpool. So I know you've been up here quite a few times, haven't you, uh, doing a lot of work with schools. Yes, yeah, fascinating. I, I, do, I do like Blackpool a lot. And, you know, I, I pray for better times for Blackpool because I, I know that, you know, sometimes... A lot of the schools struggle uh, with you know the the, the, the the funding initiatives around about that area, but uh, there's so much good going on in there. Uh, I can only wish you good luck for the future. Absolutely, and congratulations on what is undoubtedly going to be a game-changing book. So thanks again for your time, Tom. Thank you. Nailers, Netter, just talking to teachers. Teacher Development Trust Section: Learning from the team at TDT on best practice CPD with research. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Hi, my name's Maria Cunningham. I'm Head of Education at the Teach Development Trust. And today I'm joined by Bethan Hindley, our training programme lead. And we're going to talk about some of the exciting things we at TDT have been working on over the summer, particularly during the holidays in response to what CPD leaders, head teachers, colleagues in schools have told us would be really helpful ahead of this coming academic year. Bethan, I'm going to ask you actually, what is some of this exciting work that we have been doing uh, over the past few weeks? Yes, thank you, Maria. Well, obviously, it was a lot more exciting than any summer holiday plans we had. So we're very pleased that we've had this opportunity to develop our content. But at the minute, there are two main modules that we are going to be releasing. The first one is looking at introduction to professional learning cultures. So in this module, we're really supporting leaders to think about their school improvement plans, thinking about where CPD fits within that and how they can ensure that their work is really aligned to be driving school improvement. Um, and then additionally, thinking about what the features of effective CPD are and um, ensuring that their plans are aligned to meet that. So that's one module that we're really excited about. The second module is looking more closely at needs analysis and evaluation. Interestingly, this is an area that our audit highlights a lot of our schools need some further support with. So that's the main reason for us having chosen this one. And this module is looking at evaluation of CPD, what that looks like in practice, some examples of where that's working really well, some common misconceptions there are around this, and then really helping leaders to reflect on how they're identifying those CPD needs of their staff and looking at people needs really carefully. So looking at the process that can be used to plan backwards according to what the people and staff needs are to ensure there really is that um, intended impact. Mm, and I think one of the things that's really exciting about these is that we've always had a really fantastic bank of content available exclusively to our TTC network member schools where they can go online, have a look at what other schools are doing, read some of the research and use our toolkits. But these are really designed with busy leaders in mind, having gone to our network members and heard what they wanted and would fit in with their schedules. So how long do you think each of these modules would take for, say, a busy CPD leader, Bethan? Well, that's a good question. So in terms of the content, I would say, you know, maybe anything from an hour to two hours, but we've built in activities as well that will involve them speaking to colleagues and getting some more information from either senior leaders or middle leaders or maybe even pupils 
but that overall it's a relatively short module however it does involve interaction with colleagues in schools so it'll be spaced out over a couple of weeks I would say to really help build up an understanding of how things are working in the school right now. Mm, absolutely so you have that kind of whole program of, of support and of CPD it's not just kind of pushing out content it's supporting people to implement it to embed it to evaluate it which is exactly what we're all about and of course there's loads of really exciting expert input isn't there with those CPD connect up sessions that we did earlier in the summer which again network members are able to access them all on the portal there's a huge archive of them on there from people like Daniel Willingham and Thomas Gusky and so they all feature on these modules and there's a lot of that expertise and the theory built into it so we're really looking forward to being able to launch them from this term to hear from our members about how it goes and then use them in term coaching calls one of the other things I've definitely noticed, and I don't know if you've had this as well, Bethan, but I think a lot of schools have said that they'd like some more support um, or just to have a chat about uh, CPD for governors or how their trustees or their governors engage with their staff professional learning in a really careful way that's not infringing too much on the operational, but is offering just that right amount of critical support. So that's another module that's going to be on there. So for the first time, TDT schools will be able to then have this module available for their governors. What can people do if they want to access these? Obviously, there is always our website, so that's tdtrust.org, and there you can find out all you need about enrolling as a member, which will provide you immediate access to these resources, or you can reach us via Twitter and ask about um, membership through that route. We're always available and happy to talk about CPD. Yeah, hopefully uh, it'll be in the show notes of Naila's data. Uh, we really look forward to testing these out with our schools and can't wait to just keep on developing more uh, and hearing how people find them. So I think that's about it to go back to the Nailers Natter studio. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers.